Now, I don't know if you are aware of a sport. It's very popular among biblical commentators. It's called, Let's Try to Explain What's Wrong with Thomas. Doubting Thomas. I suppose it's human nature, isn't it, for us to try to psychoanalyze people and figure them out? But poor old Thomas, he gets special treatment. For example, in the 19th century, a minister named Thomas More wrote this, Thomas was a man of gloomy spirit, prone to look on the dark side of everything and live in the shade. There is little about him that's bright, sunny, or hopeful. Hence, he was not as ready to believe the good news as he was ready to believe the bad. The frigidity of his temperament made him skeptical, hasty in coming to unfavorable conclusions. How'd you like that written about you? Hey, one of my favorite teachers, Pastor John MacArthur, wrote this about Thomas. Thomas was somewhat of a negative person, a worrywart, a brooder, tended to be anxious and angst-ridden. He was like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. He anticipated the worst all the time. That's a guy I like. But wait, it gets worse. Famous evangelical scholar J.I. Packer over in England in one of his books. Again, these are great guys. Love these guys. They tell us, J.I. Packer tells us in one of his books that Thomas was also called Didymus, which we see in the text here. The word Didymus is Greek for a twin. The name Thomas is Hebrew for a twin. And we wonder who the other twin was. He may have been one of the other apostles. We don't know. Maybe it was Matthew or James, J.I. Packer speculates. But he comes to the conclusion that Thomas was one of two and that he was probably the less intelligent of the two and that he lived with some kind of inferiority complex about the fact that he was less intelligent than the other twin. Now, you're asking yourself probably like I, like I did, where on earth do they get the evidence for these kinds of conclusions? It's like poor old Thomas is like a psychologist's dream. You know, and all these speculations are based on just the slimmest evidence that you could possibly imagine. So we're going to try something radical, okay? As we come to the text this morning, I'm going to try my best, and I'll probably fail, but I'm going to try my best to put to one side all attempts to speculate, because the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Uh, John Calvin had a fairly good rule of thumb. We try to follow it, even as pastors today. We, sh- we, we shouldn't go beyond what the Bible says. We should just stick to what the Bible clearly teaches. Sometimes we, we call that staying on the line. We don't want to go above the line. We don't want to go below the line. We want to stay on it. So I want to try to do that this morning as we look at the story of Doubting Thomas. And I want you to notice... The first of three things this morning about Thomas, and that is his absence. His absence. He was absent when the Lord was present. We're told in verse 26, it would have been about eight days since the Lord Jesus was risen from the dead. Eight days from that first Lord's Day, 
when he had come to the disciples in the upper room and had shown him his hands and his side. Verse, uh, verse 20 tells us that. Sometimes we forget that, that, that he did show the other disciples his, his hands and his side. Not just Thomas, he, he showed it to them too. It's interesting, the Lord was very conscious of the need for the disciples, the apostles, to, to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. He, he wanted to make sure that they knew it was really him, right? Not some ghost. He wanted them to see the marks of the nails. He wanted them to see the mark of the spear, He would come to them again and again and again over the next six weeks that he was on earth to to confirm it in their minds absolutely that he had risen from the dead. But it's been eight days since that happened, since he rose from the dead. And now Thomas has been hearing the news, right? He's been hearing, the Lord was here! Thomas! The Lord visited us. The Lord was present here in this room with us. And he was absent. Now, can you imagine the speculation as to why poor Thomas was absent? We won't even go there. Was was he just too depressed at the death of Christ to go out and about, having seen the Lord crucified, buried, and and dead. Was, was he an introvert, you know, and, and therefore it's a time of emotional crisis and, and he just wants to be on his own? Was he sick and, and bedridden and unable to be there that day? We don't know. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he missed the resurrected Christ. We know that. I think in order to better understand his absence, we should take a minute to find out what John has already told us about Thomas's character. Back in chapter 11, John chapter 11, the Lord Jesus hears about the illness of his friend Lazarus. You remember this? The brother of Mary and Martha lived in Bethany near Jerusalem. By the time that, that Jesus receives news of his friend's illness, he had gone quite far away. He was across the Jordan River, many miles from Jerusalem. Um, he had gone away to get, get away from the hubbub, from all the, the noise that's going on around his ministry back near the capital. And news comes that Lazarus is sick. And it's obvious from the gospel record that this home, th- this home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, was a home that was very close to Jesus' heart, right? Dear friends. He went there a lot. He found hospitality there frequently. And Jesus' reaction in in chapter 11 is, this illness does not lead to death. In other words, this sickness will not end with death. Well, you remember what happens, right? A second messenger comes. This time the news is Lazarus is already dead. And that's when Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. And some of the disciples are wondering, right? Like, uh, why didn't you say that yesterday? You know, like, well, like we could have been there, but now, now that he's dead, he says, let's go. And, and they're wondering. And the disciples remind him in the text here, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Like, is this, is this the smartest thing to do? And it's at this point that Thomas interjects his words in John chapter 11. Thomas says, should I say it in an Eeyore voice? Let us also go that we may die with him. 
So the psychologist bursts in here again, right? Thomas is just so depressed, so pessimistic. He's just giving in to the inevitable and saying, well, let's go. We're going to die. Well, John doesn't exactly tell us the tone of voice that Thomas uses here, does he? All we have are the words, right? Jesus is going to go. They want to kill him there. And in killing him, they may choose to kill us too. That's what we know. Is it not possible that Thomas is showing us some courage here? Some boldness? When the Lord says, let's go to Judea, he's not actually, you know, asking the disciples to vote on whether we go to Bethany, right? He's telling us we're going there. We're we're going to go there. And if we go there, we're going to get in harm's way, likely. So let's go. And if we have to, let's die with Jesus. Isn't it possible that Thomas could be communicating some courage some realism instead of pessimism. Later on in John's Gospel, chapter 14, we find Thomas again in the upper room. Jesus had said some things to the disciples, some hard things like, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going away. And, and where I go, you know, and the way you know, and, 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 and I am the way, <coughs> excuse me, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and it's in this conversation that, that Jesus is having with his disciples that Thomas again interjects. In chapter 14, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? In other words, we'll, we'll, never, we'll never get to where you're going. We might lose our way. How do we get there? I, I don't know that we know the way. Here, here is a man for whom the thought of Jesus going away destroys him. Will they get to the right place? Will they, will they get there in the end? He's concerned about that. He may, he may not find Jesus anymore. He, he's a man who wants to be where Jesus is. He's a man who obviously loves Jesus, who wants to be with him wherever Jesus is. You know, this is the one indisputable thing about Thomas that we actually do know. He loved Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus wherever he went. And he, and he wanted to be able to pay the price, whatever it may be, of being with Jesus. But here in John 20, he's absent. And we don't know why. We can't speculate why he was absent. But whatever his reasons, he was not there. It's a significant part of the story. And that's what sets us up for the next part of the story. Number two, secondly, look at his reaction, his reaction. And and we see here his unbelief. I think we can call it unbelief. Look again at verse 25. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Those are his own words. Now, on one hand, he should have believed what they said, shouldn't he? I mean, these are his colleagues, right? These are his his fellow apostles telling him that it's true that Jesus arrived. But I I think Thomas understood something, and, and, and we'll see in a moment why I think this. But 
I think Thomas understood precisely what was involved if what they said was true. And so his unbelief, I think we'll see in a moment, reveals someone who is thinking through the implications of the news that he's received. And he's not daring to make the next leap in his thinking and in his faith until he sees the evidence of the marks on Jesus. Because if what they say is true, the one who was crucified, dead, and buried is omnipotent, all-powerful, all-mighty. There's nothing that even death can do to hold him and keep him down. And so he expresses his disbelief. Well, verse 28, eight days later, the disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked just as they were before. Jesus came and stood among them just as he had done before. And he said, peace be with you, just as he had said before. Everything's the same. Having pronounced his peace upon his disciples, do you notice that immediately he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now remember, things have got to be going on in Thomas's mind, right? Jesus knew what I said, right? Jesus heard what I, unless somebody went behind my back and told Jesus what I had said, he knew. How could he, how could he know what I said? He hasn't been here for the last week. He's been gone. He's been out of communication. But here he is, and he knows exactly what I said last week when they told me that he had visited. He knows. Not because somebody told him, but because he knows. He knows our hearts. He reads our minds. He understands what's going on in our soul, in our subconscious. And Jesus immediately picks up on what Thomas is thinking And you notice immediately he draws attention to the evidence of the resurrection. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand out. Place it in my side. Now I've said we mustn't be overly critical about Thomas's concern about wanting to see the evidence. Jesus had appeared to the others in the upper room specifically to show them his wounds. Verse 20 again specifically to demonstrate that it was really him who was alive from the dead. This was important. It's important in light of what happens in the middle of this section as Jesus appears to them in the upper room and breathes on them what we saw last week and gives them the authority with the Spirit to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in his name. These apostles are going to be the ones, these 11 men, these are going to be the ones who are going to lead the charge. These are the ones who are going to lay the foundation of what the church would believe and think and say about Jesus from this point forward. 
their testimony would be crucial. The rest of us who believe on Jesus, believe on Jesus through their message. Just like Jesus had prayed would happen in John 17, you remember? So it was not out of order for Thomas to understand that seeing the evidence was necessary for him to occupy the role of an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostle had to be an eye and an ear witness to everything that had gone on in the saving career of Jesus on earth. And most of all, if Jesus had really risen from the dead. And so it was actually proper for Thomas to demand that he see the evidence for himself. Because it was his testimony, it was his message that was going to go forth. He had to see it for himself. And so Jesus shows him the wounds like he had already done the other disciples. And he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. There are no lectures here. There's no tearing him apart or embarrassing him in front of the rest, as sometimes we think happened here. There is no stern rebuke. This is the gentle words of Jesus calling Thomas as he calls each of us to believe. And it's because of this then that Thomas, is re- Thomas reaches the third thing we'll look at this morning, his conclusion. He reaches his conclusion. Look at what he said in verse, look at what the Bible says in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Do you understand the magnitude of those words? For a Jew? For Thomas? Had he been thinking about this through the week? Since he had heard Jesus had appeared, had, had he been reflecting on all those conversations that, that we've, we've seen between Jesus and his disciples recorded in the Gospel of John, things like back in chapter 5, the, the Father has life in himself. He is granted to the Son to have life in himself. People should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He's spoken, Jesus has spoken about the Father's glory and his glory. He has said things like, I and The Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Was Thomas digesting all of this over the last eight days? Would you be? The only language that comes to him in the moment is the language that he has obviously considered in his mind as he reflected on all the events that had unfolded and are unfolding before his own eyes. My Lord and my God. When what he encountered left him with only two words to describe Jesus, Lord and God. And you find words together like this describing the Almighty God, even back in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 35. You find these words together describing the God of Israel. Who could do what Jesus has done? 
Who could be pierced for our transgressions, crucified, dead, and buried, and then rise from the dead and be alive, and now standing before Him? Who could do this but only the Lord God of Israel? And for the first time, Jesus is addressed in the absolute sense as my God. In many ways, John's taking us back to the beginning of his book, isn't he? There's a, there's a crucial turning point here in the Gospel of John. This confession of Thomas is absolutely vital to the, the overall shape of this gospel. It turns our thoughts right back to the very beginning. Do you remember John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, face to face with God. Remember we talked about that? And the Word was God. And here we are. We've watched Jesus' life. We've seen the signs. We've seen the demonstrations of his godness. And Thomas could have done a little rerun in his mind. We don't know, right? Over these last eight days. What was it Jesus did? Thomas saw him walk on water. He saw him still the, so- the storms. He saw, he saw him calm the sea. He saw him make food for multitudes. He saw him turn water into wine. He saw him raise the dead. He saw him make the sick well. He saw him make the mute speak and the deaf hear and the blind see. He did God things. And he reached his conclusion, didn't he, Thomas? The conclusion that John puts in these terms back in the prologue, back in chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. What glory? The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Thomas had seen the glory of Christ in his humanity. And through the things that he did, he saw beyond the humanity of Jesus to his deity. My Lord and my God. Thomas, in that moment, got it. The resurrection opened his eyes to see what was truly happening in all the actions of Jesus throughout his life, throughout his ministry. And he got it. And he worshiped Jesus. He bowed to Jesus, a monotheistic Jew, one God. That's the, that's the Shema, right? That's the, the, the Hebrew motto. There is one God. This monotheistic Jew adored and confessed Jesus to be his Lord and his God. But then the passage ends with Jesus pronouncing a blessing. The blessing in verse 29 marks now a transition that Jesus is teaching Thomas about. I've revealed myself to you, Thomas. I've revealed myself to the other apostles, but there's coming a day. Things are going to change. Look what he says. Have you believed because you have seen me? What's the answer to that question? 
Yes. Yes, you have, Thomas. Jesus goes on. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Is he condemning Thomas for believing because he saw? No. But he's saying a transition is taking place. From now on, Jesus is saying, people will not see like you have. But on the basis of your testimony, Thomas, they will believe in me. This is a great transitioning that's happening. It's still happening today, isn't it? From now on, people will come to believe without seeing based on the apostles' witness, which will be recorded in Holy Scripture, in these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This transition is going to leave us with a perfect revelation. The Scripture is a perfect revelation of God. It's all we need, this side of heaven, to know God. It is the perfect and the final word. These holy scriptures give us the knowledge that we need to think correctly about God and to believe and embrace and worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. I'll ask the praise team to come back up and prepare for our final song in just a minute. As they're coming, I want to finish thinking about this man, Thomas, for a minute. I told you this morning, don't be too hard on him, right? Enough other people have done that. (laughs) You don't have to be too hard on him. Give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe. Let me tell you a little bit more about Thomas. After the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2, history records that Thomas left Jerusalem He went north, and he turned right, he turned east, and he went into Syria, and he planted the Syrian church there, and he kept going. He kept going east, he went into India, and he planted what's called the Martoma Church in India that survives to this very day, and he kept going. And modern historians think that Thomas got as far as China and planted a church in China. And somewhere after that, coming back perhaps, he was martyred, killed for the cause of Jesus Christ, never went home again. Thomas, yes, doubting Thomas, our brother, a holy apostle. He was used by God mightily. And what gripped him? What gripped him, what never left him, was that Sunday night when Jesus came and showed him his hands in his side. And Thomas falls before him and says, My Lord and my God. How about you? Have you come to believe that Jesus is more than a historical figure? 
more than a good man, more than a religious leader? Have you come to see that he is God in the flesh? That he died for your sins? Rose again to give you eternal life? Jesus said it himself, you can only come to the Father by coming first to bow before me as your Lord, as your God. To turn from your sins to embrace him as your Savior, your rescuer, your friend, and your brother. And if there's one thing you should pick up from the story of Thomas this morning, it's this. He knows all about you. He knows all about your problems. He knows all about your past. He knows all about your heart. And he loves you in spite of all that. He wants to save you. He wants to make you clean. Wash you white as snow. Make you his. Won't you come to love and follow Jesus this morning? If you get it today, maybe for the first time, if God has opened your eyes and you say, oh, Jesus is, Jesus is God. And he can save me. And the Spirit has opened your eyes and shown you that truth this morning. I, I call you to respond to that. Bow before Jesus as your Lord, your Lord and your God. Call out to him to save you. And he will. He says he will. He said, Jesus said, him who comes to me, I will never cast out. He's waiting. After our service this morning, in just a few moments, I would encourage you to stop by our prayer room just over here in the corner of the sanctuary to your left where a Bible counselor will pray with you, open the Bible, show you how you can become a follower of Jesus. Fellow believers, I hope you've seen this morning that it's only by faith that we are saved. Don't be disbelieving, Jesus said. Believe. Are you proud to be called a believer? A believer in someone you've never seen. Through the testimony of men you've never met. From the words of a book that's 2,000 years old. That's called faith. But it's not a blind faith, is it? It's not an irrational faith. It's not a misplaced faith. It's not a manipulated faith. It's real. And it's only by faith that we are saved. And it's only by faith that we continue to live and follow Christ. Keep on believing, brothers and sisters. Keep on preaching the gospel to yourself every day, that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead. And there is nothing Satan can do. There is no temptation that can overcome the love that Jesus has for you. And the keeping, the keeping you safe that the Lord Jesus does for you. So live victoriously, Christian. 
live by faith. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this important truth as we come to the end of our time together this morning.